your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and I'm feeling quarantine, y'all. It ebbs and it flows, but Labor Day weekend a few days ago really got me down. This is supposed to be our bummer of a turning point that, ugh, all the nice beach weather is gone and summer is over. Or, if you're in California, that you will now burn alive if you go outside. But it was just another step forward on the emptiness treadmill that is 2020. I mean, I'm in Colorado, and it is literally a blizzard outside. Early September, and it's a blizzard. I cannot deal. Now, I promise this won't be one woman's slam poetry hour about the annoyance that is this year, but given that looking forward keeps getting bleaker, I've been spending all my free time lately looking backwards, and I really think it's helping. I watched Defunct Land's video on Tomorrowland at the time of Disneyland's opening, listened to background music loops of Epcot from the early days, and saw a bunch of clips of rocket rods at Disneyland, which, as you'll remember from last week's episode, I had never been on. And it's really been so nice. I find that channeling a park I still can't go to for a much more airtight reason, you know, the time travel doesn't exist yet, is an easier pill to swallow than not knowing when many people's jobs, livelihoods, and day-to-day may return. Also, does anyone else find themselves missing the tiniest, strangest parts of California theme parks? I found myself daydreaming more than once about the drive I'd take through the hills to reach Universal Studios Hollywood, or strangely, the Disneyland lockers. Last year, I started getting a locker on every single Disneyland trip just because I'd get so cold late at night. And now simply being in a park at nighttime is a foreign concept. Things will eventually come back to normal, but it's still bonkers to me that we all had this on-the-ground training and expertise for how we visit theme parks, from arrival times to annual passholder calendars to soft openings of seasonal festivals, and now Disneyland has just been closed for 179 days. That's practically six months. Half a year. It feels like some announcement is bound to come at some point, but either way, it remains astonishing. So this week's episode, as you've noticed, is not a reported story. A few forthcoming episodes, which are, oh my god, so exciting, are also taking a lot more time than I anticipated. At the same time, we keep getting so many good calls on the Churro Hotline that they're all themselves teeny tiny stories, and I figured, hey, it's Labor Day weekend, things are laid back, let's do a mailbag episode. Only, it wound up taking as much time and even more fact-checking than normal weeks. Oops! But regardless, this is going to be a good one because it's not just me hitting the play button on a churro's answering machine and letting it ride. I'm basically out here Nancy Drewing it, hoping to get correct answers to these off-the-wall queries, sending emails I never thought I'd be sending, and trying to compile solutions to long-held questions that no one really seems to know. Now, if you're already mourning the loss of Halloween events that included strangers dumping handfuls of candy into a bag or hugging Jack Skellington tightly, you know, things we used to do that seem bananas now, you'll also be pleased to know that this episode weirdly leans into the haunts. September 9th is not by any means Halloween, but if you're a ride-or-die theme park kind of person, this is your spooky season. That's because we get started early as parks people. Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party would have already began in Florida, HHN would be kicking off, and you'd probably be texting your friends about whatever new treat was being sold at Oogie Boogie Bash. Since that's obviously not happening this year, beyond Magic Kingdom holding a low-key celebration each day, it really feels like the Halloween spirits threw us a bone with this week's churro hotline. 
Spoiler alert, Grim Grinning Ghosts surely come out to socialize in this joint, so I hope you are not afraid of spirits. Truly, if I knew how many ghosts would be discussed in this episode, I would have saved it for Halloween. So this is your unexpected theme park Halloween episode coming in early September as it snows outside my window. I didn't intend for this episode to be so focused on haunts, but it just happened. And frankly, I'm leaning into it. Now, in terms of news this week, there really wasn't that much until Walt Disney World announced the new Christmas news that just came out as I am recording this. In terms of theme park news, there really wasn't much going on until Walt Disney World dropped all of their Christmas time information yesterday. There will be Christmas at Walt Disney World starting November 6th through December 30th, but it's gonna look a little different than years past. Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party, a ticketed event that is beloved by fans, is unfortunately canceled, but a lot of the elements of it are being absorbed into the parks. There will still be decor, merchandise, and themed food and drink, and while Cinderella Castle Dreamlights are not happening, a huge blow to fans who wait for it all year, there will be festive projections on Cinderella Castle for some fun photo ops and to fill the void of not seeing the lights. Now, over at Epcot, the Candlelight Processional has been canceled for obvious reasons, because it basically is a bunch of teenagers and adults crammed into risers, which is the opposite of what we need right now. But Epcot's International Festival of the Holidays is a go, starting November 27th. The last bit of news, which is a bit of a heartbreaker, is that gingerbread displays at Disney hotels are a no-go in 2020. Considering it's pretty hard to social distance when you're buying a shingle from a woman working inside a shop made of candy, I get it. But there will be Christmas trees and decor at Disney hotels, so it'll still feel like Christmas time, even though when you step outside, your glasses will fog up from Florida's humidity. Disney Springs is getting in on the festivities again, but this year has a theme park-like touch because apparently Disney Springs will be the only location for a nightly snowfall. So if you're itching to get your snope fix, that little bit of snow mixed with soap that lands on your tongue, not this year because you're wearing a mask, you can go for free to Disney Springs and not have to splurge for a ticket. Now, speaking of Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party, which, as I mentioned, is canceled, you will still have ways to encounter your favorite characters in Christmastime garb throughout the parks. Disney's Hollywood Studios has themed character dining with Santa Goofy, Minnie Mouse, and a few other characters at Hollywood and Vine, and there will be holiday character cavalcades at all four parks. At Magic Kingdom, though, you will still see gingerbread men, you'll still see elves, and you will still see reindeer because they are taking the best parts of the party and sticking them in the park during the day. Even better, toy soldiers will still be parading down Main Street, which is my personal favorite part of Christmas time. Granted, it won't be the whole madness that is snowfall and dream lights and Santa and everything happening at once, but toy soldiers in a pandemic? is a blessing. There will also be appearances from Santa Claus in the parks, so no matter what you do, you will still get your Christmas time fix this year. Now for other less exciting, less festive news, 
Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, which is being duped for Disneyland, is now pushed to 2023 from 2022, which is also the next time I will emerge from my house without a mask. And as you probably know by now, Polynesian Village Resort is closing through summer 2021 for a Moana-inspired refurbishment. Now remember, the Disney Vacation Club rooms at that resort will remain available, but the monorail station will also be closing next month as part of the refurb. It appears restaurants currently open will remain open within the main building, but it's worth taking note of if you plan to stay there on DVC points. A few people have asked me how I feel about the change, and that hotel broke my heart when they got rid of the indoor water feature, because I love nothing more than an indoor water feature. Oh my God, even an indoor pool. I will settle for anything. It's why I love ET Adventure so much, that smell of stale water. So at this point, there's nothing the Polly could do to hurt me. Now, in a last bit of personal news, I was given access to a new Instagram product that lets you editorialize your posts into guides that live on your feed. I just started toying around with it, but it's awesome, and finally makes it easy to recommend what to do, see, and eat within the theme parks on Instagram platform. This is weirdly sounding like an ad, but I promise it's not. I'm just a writer who has tried every medium in the past decade, and having a way to actually help you visit the parks beyond a caption beneath many selfies of my pale face is frankly a dream come true. Okay, you know that feeling that everyone knows something that you don't? For me, that used to be Quince, but no more. Quince is a truly astounding retailer, essentially carrying everything a person on your mood board would wear. We're talking washable silk blouses, chic leather bags, 14 karat gold jewelry, European linen dresses, and the best part of all is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They're up here with $50 Mongolian cashmere sweaters. $50! Beautiful, timeless items you can wear and actually live in. Meaning, you don't have to be scared to bring them on your theme park travels. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And if you're sensitive to retailers like I am, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. But it's not just your everyday work-life clothes. They have everything. I recently joined a new gym, big deal for me, and desperately needed new workout clothes to wear there. It's kind of like an LA gym. It's like, you kind of got to look cute. So I ordered a pair of their ultra-form bike shorts and high-rise pocket leggings. And when I tell you, the quality of these leggings is truly on par with brands I paid three times as much for, which really kind of makes me love these three times more. I'm not only going to buy them again, but actually buy the other travel stuff in my cart because they have things like beautiful pastel suitcases for 129 bucks and these wildly affordable compression packing cubes that I have been waiting forever to buy compression packing cubes and they're always so pricey and here the price fits. So if you want to get ready for work, your new gym, travel, anything in your life, go to Quince. Quince.com slash amusing will get you free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Ooh, that's nice for someone who puts stuff off like I do. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash amusing to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash amusing. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Okay, before we dive into this week's semi-solvable mysteries, I want to refer back to Utilidor jewelry sales. I got a bunch of calls, but this one in particular was my favorite because their sheer bewilderment and fascination about this, despite being a Disney employee, seems to perfectly match my own. I'm listening to the podcast right now. It's like 5 a.m. ish, 4 a.m. ish in Australia, but I couldn't sleep, so I chucked it on. And I've just heard that you wanted to know stories about people selling jewelry in the Utilidors. So I saw it in the Utilidors, but it also happened in Epcot. Like, if you've ever been backstage at Epcot where the buses kind of come in, that cast entrance just out the back of cast services. Yeah, I saw like jewelry there, like knockoff handbags. My friend, like, was buying perfume one day when I was coming back from work. Being Australian, I'd kind of never really seen this before, and I didn't really get it. But, yeah, like once every so often, there'd just be this random stall out the back of Epcot, and they'd have, like, bracelets and handbags and whatever else. It would either be, like, that or, like, employee initiative, but just, like, you'd get off the bus, after work and you'd be walking out in this cast only area where you literally had to like scan your ID to get anywhere and there'd just be someone selling handbags and stuff. So can also verify that it happens at Epcot. Incredible. I'll add from the many, many things people have shared with me that these vendors are not rogue. It's not a guy in a trench coat who pulls his jacket aside to reveal glimmering gems and knockoff lounge fly backpacks. These vendors are very much sanctioned by Disney. I heard of similar vendors at Team Disney's corporate offices and even saw a photo of something a member of my Facebook group bought there. It's a knit-like bag is the best way to describe it, with goldfish and kittens on the front, where one of the kittens appears to be playing not with a ball of yarn, but some sort of golden snitch. I'll post a photo if I'm able to, but it's adorable and bizarre. There are even more vendors than what we've discussed, both at Magic Kingdom and at Disneyland. I heard everything from AAA to 24-hour fitness to Costco, with one person's husband signing up for a Costco membership in the Utilidor and walking out with a free roll of Kirkland paper towels. There are also dog treats, children's books, giveaways. So many people came out of the woodwork to share their experiences. But not one, not one seems to have actually bought jewelry. So I'll keep digging until I learn more. We also got plenty of other calls from the first episode about other secret cast member only spaces like Epcot's Utilidors. Yes, 
Epcot has its own series of tunnels, but it's not as iconic or vast as Magic Kingdom's. There's actually this weirdly good story in the Chicago Tribune written in 1993 for Epcot's 20th anniversary that describes the tunnels beneath Epcot's future world as a U-shaped tunnel stretching 700 feet. According to that story, it starts at the north end of Interventions East, curves under Spaceship Earth, and ends at the north end of Interventions West. And at Disneyland, one person called in to tell us about their backstage employees-only Starbucks, which is located kind of behind Space Mountain. Frappuccinos without the Main Street USA wait is one thing, but spotting the Dapper Dans, all four of them, waiting for a drink like this caller did must have been magical. Stars, they're just like us. Hi, Carly. This is Paul from Ohio. I used to work at Universal at Back to the Future, the ride. And when I first started there, the senior employees told us about the ghost of someone who died on the ride. And I didn't believe any of it until working late one night. I used to see the lights flicker in the vehicle in question, and it freaked me out. Now, my question is, since that ride has now been re-themed to The Simpsons, do you think that allowed the spirit to rest? If someone is haunting a ride and it gets totally reimagined, are they still there or do they have to uh, start haunting in a different way? Thanks. Okay, yeah, we're just going to dive right into the spooky stuff. Parents, this should be fine, but if your little ones don't like any paranormal activity, skip pretty far ahead, like just close to the end of this episode. Now, I am someone who operates a churro-themed answering machine, but I am also a journalist, so I set out to report on the current status of the supposed Back to the Future attraction ghost, and what I found was not what I anticipated. Now, a few older employees from Back to the Future weren't really sure what I was talking about, but you can bet your Halloween pumpkins that every modern employee I spoke to had something to say. When I first began reaching out to former and current team members, I was a a little dodgy about it, sliding into DMs talking spooks like, oh yes, hello, I am looking into claims that a ghost is rumored to exist in a ride. Perhaps you've heard of it, maybe, perhaps? And by the time I was was done, I was just like, you seen that ghost? Have you seen that ghost? Did you see that ghost? Because so many people have seen the ghost of level three. His origin story is spotty at best, but he's said to haunt the upper floor of the attraction, which isn't always in use if crowds are low. And yes, caller, he's most definitely still there, haunting the heck out of the Simpsons ride and enjoying his new digs like the last five minutes of Fixer Upper, just locking into a dope new home where he can spread out and get comfy. Experiences with the ghost of level three do vary. One person said that many staffers often flat out refuse to go up to that level alone at night. It's the coldest because the projectors are on level three, and it's also very dark, just adding to the creepy factor. Now, we have an episode planned for later in the season about what it's like to be a theme park journalist, but honestly, after the emails I sent to PR people this past week to inquire about this call and the next few, that episode may just be an obituary for my former career. I had to fact check a ghost this week, people. A ghost. Do you know what it's like to email an official spokesperson for a theme park and ask them about a real ghost in a fake ride? It's not a good look. 
I was unsurprisingly unable to get a response, but I heard from plenty of other people who could provide clarity. We're not just talking shivers down one's spine. No, a lot of people contend that they or their coworkers have seen this ghost in the shenanigans he's been pulling for years. I talked to... I don't know, a dozen people who worked on Back to the Future or The Simpsons Ride at Universal Studios Florida, and almost all of them had stories to share of flickering lights or moaning noises or minor ride stops or unexplained movements or just other plain strange things seen by individuals or even on control room cameras. One employee said, he loved to play with the funhouse doors and slammed a door on me once when I went to go clear a car. Another had seen photographic evidence. She said, when I first started in 2012, one of my coworkers got a photo of a flash of light moving around the back of a vehicle once it was homed or put back on the base after a show cycle and taken out of service. Whether it was a camera shot or not, it definitely looked like a ghostly figure walking around an empty room. And after that, it always freaked me out. When I tried to confirm how people first learned of the ghost of level three, one ride operator shared that she was made aware of him on her first day of training. On her first day, welcome to Krusty Land, we got a ghost. She claims to have been skeptical at first, thinking, okay, sure, there's a ghost. Until, and I quote, I actually saw it and it changed my mind real quick. She'd see him appear on the control room cameras every now and then, when it would look as though someone had walked across the screen, but disappeared before they made it onto the next camera view. I've seen the shadows, she said. I've even made sure to say hi to him a couple times. Now... It ends up if you ask a Universal team member, current or former, about a ghost on the ride, they'll also tell you about all the other ghosts on all the other rides. Every time I asked more questions, more ghosts appeared. Ghosts in the old rides, like Confrontation, that stemmed from a tragic employee mishap. Ghosts on the second floor of Lombard Seafood Restaurant, which is now a Universal Annual Pass Holder Lounge. So good luck, because there's apparently regular paranormal sightings. Even ghosts across the country at other parks, like Kings Island and Kings Dominion, who absolutely have ghoulish stories about those ghost origins. And then a weird phenomenon happened. As I dug deeper, I wound up linking back up with the original caller who told me that, oh no, he wasn't calling about Florida. He was calling about Back to the Future turned Simpsons ride on the West Coast. Same ride, same threat, different park. There's just that many ghosts. I don't have enough time on earth to report on all of these theme park ghosts because, according to employees, they're everywhere. There are so many, in fact, that I forgot about an entire other ghost voicemail until I started working on this episode. Hi, Carly. I just wanted to say, love the podcast so far. It's been very interesting to listen to, so thank you. Uh, I wanted to share just one of my favorite experiences that I had, I was a Disneyland cast member uh, for a number of years, but I did the Disneyland college program as well. One of the best and most fun options that we had when we were doing our program was to do a walkthrough tour at Haunted Mansion. So we actually got to walk through the entire attraction. And this is around the time that they were installing the Hatbox Ghost. So it was very exciting, to say the least, especially for me. 
my favorite attraction. When we were walking through the attraction, one of the cast members uh, who gave us the tour told us about some real-life ghosts uh, that he truly believes do haunt the haunted mansion. So it's not a story that I've ever really heard outside of kind of Disney cast member lore, but uh, legend has it that there is a ghost that haunts the unload area at the attraction, and several cast members have had witnessed sightings of this ghost when they turned around and looked in the mirror while they were walking the unload area. So if you're keeping track, we got the original Back to the Future ghost in California, the ghost of the third floor in Florida, all the other miscellaneous ghosts here and there, and now a haunted mansion ghost? Like not a ride ghost in Haunted Mansion or a ghost in canon in Haunted Mansion, but a real ghost in a Haunted Mansion that spooks cast members. So get this, the plot somehow, somehow thickens. I set out to report on this new ghost and found that, yeah, supposedly cast members on the Disneyland attraction have felt this ghost, Timmy, tugging at their skirts as if a small child is behind them when the unload area is completely empty. Only to find out from the person who got that information for me that there is another ghost named Timmy at Disneyland in Toontown. And apparently everyone who has seen him says he wears a red hat and likes to move things around. And all I'm saying is me joking at the start of this podcast that I was going to be your proverbial ghost host may have summoned a spirit. It actually happened. Did I have a premonition? Do I have feeling towards the outside world? I do not know. Either way, do not call me again about ghosts. Okay? I cannot bear this mental HHN going from person to person asking about ghosts and finding out yet another ghost is in the park. I'm scared. Okay? I do not have enough time on this universe to fact check these ghosts and I'm scared I'm summoning them by doing so. This is my personal scare zone, isn't it? Okay. Gonna take a deep breath and we're gonna move on. Hi, Carly. My name is Matthew. I have so far loved both episodes of the podcast. My main question is, is that me and someone else on Twitter by the name of Kevin Brackett have been going back and forth for, I'd say, almost a year or so with the biggest question of whose child that is at the beginning of Carousel of Progress, the one that is helping the mother with laundry. I have asked cast members. My sister thinks that it's just a random child or a neighbor, but I don't believe her. I just want to know whose child that actually is, because no one seems to know, because all the family has been introduced at the beginning of the show, so whose child is that? I know my limits, and while I major in all things theme park, I'm definitely not the go-to person when it comes to Carousel of Progress. So I decided to call up someone who is, the genius behind Defunct Land, Kevin Perjurer, who knows his theme park origins better than anyone. Knowing he's the closest I'll get to an answer about this Carousel of Progress quandary without reanimating Walt Disney himself, I'm so thankful he was willing to help me out. Also, I have terrible cell service in this call, so if he cuts out here and there, it's my fault. Do not blame him. Blame me. Thank you so much for uh, solving our reader quandaries, I suppose. I didn't didn't, didn't say solve. (laughs) (laughs) Just setting expectations right out of the gate. Any insight you can provide, uh, I am all ears. So the Carousel Progress 
We're talking about the little girl that's like pumping the washing machine in the first scene, right? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Um, so like she does not appear again um, in the second, third, or fourth scenes. And I think part of the reason has to be because she has no, there's no voice actress for her. There's no speaking role. She seems to be more of a prop in that scene because you can look back at the footage from Walt Disney's Carousel Progress video. Um, they're not the Carousel, but the Walt Disney goes to the 1964 New York World's Fair, and you can see them building that animatronic. And I don't even think get it to speak if they wanted to because that animatronic is just a basically a prop. I think the head turns a little bit. They updated it now, but essentially it's just this kind of gelatin-like body attached to... Uh, the mechanism that she's pumping. So, of course, the mechanism is moving. She's not. And then it looks like she's the one pumping it. And so that's how that works. So it's essentially a prop. And the character itself does not appear again. But she's not the only character that disappears. These characters are immortal. They don't age until the last scene, which can be interpreted like a couple different ways. The lore is that she does not have the Tucker everlasting immortality and she just died or grew up or something because there is a grandma that appears only once because that grandma looks nothing like the grandma that is in the final scene. She is also not the same animatronic design. So the final scene, the grandpa and the grandma that speaks looks like an older version of John and Sarah. And then John and Sarah are also in that scene, which that makes no sense. Also... Uh, too too deep trivia, but I'm sure a lot of people that are listening know this, but John's voice actor is, the grandpa's voice actor in the final scene was the original John. So it was like a dynasty system. I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I can stop at any time. Um, no, I just, yeah. I was like, oh, we can wrap this one up airtight. And now I'm like, the child is gelatin and nobody's aging. What's happening? I think the short answer, if you want a short short answer, is that it's just a prop. Logistically, it was just a prop that they needed to fill that scene, and it made sense to have a little girl. I've seen people speculate that it's the neighbor girl. I've had people speculate that she dies. I've had people speculate that it's just a cousin visiting. I mean, there's been a bunch of speculation to who that little girl is, but she's always there, and she does have she has more articulation now than she originally did. The little girl, but still, I don't think she has a mechanism to speak. So I think the short wow. answer is she never had a speaking role. She's just a prop that's like a cool. I mean, this is they just invented animatronics, so it's just a cool thing for a figure to do. But no, she does not have any any other appearances or anything else. I wish I had like an answer. I could be. I could tell you. Oh, that's who she is, and she's supposed to be this. But that's nobody knows. I, I don't think there is a reason. I don't think there was ever. I don't think they knew that we'd be talking about this. I hate to leave you completely unanswered, but I will give you this parting gift. Kevin and I went on to talk for a bit, and just like with the ghost calls, things got spooky. We went on to talk about the relationship between Carousel of Progress and the age-old attraction horizons and the character overlap and a bunch of other stuff until he said truly the most terrifying thing I've heard on this podcast yet. It's a bit of nightmare fuel, so if children are still listening, mm, you might want to skip ahead. Otherwise, you will have a terrible time putting them down tonight. But either way, here it is. I don't know if you knew this, but they, when the Horizons closed, they took the family 
and all the animatronics, and they put them under the carousel progress, and they just have been disassembling them whenever one of the family members breaks. You rarely see animatronics reused because they're just broken and just dismantled and then picked apart for its pieces to basically zombie keep these animatronics going. So that's why you rarely see animatronics preserved on top of the fact that uh, their skin degrades very quickly, if not constantly um, upkept, especially the felt ones. But I knew that they pick everything apart, but something about it being an eerily similar animatronic that's being pulled apart for parts underneath the one that's on stage feels very us to me. Like there's like a, like a tether to a, another animatronic who's just dying so the other one can live. Yeah, I mean, there's photos of it too. They have photos of the of like legs and arms, and you can. It's the Horizons family, and they have it on the shelves. I hate that. It, I hate. I hate that. Logistically, it does because these these animatronics, a lot of the, they make them differently now. So it helps if you can get the parts from the old ones, especially ones that are literally probably the exact same. So it makes sense, and it also is kind of poetic because Horizons was the sequel, and then it like, like almost like a the ash, spreading the ashes and growing a flower bed. Mm, yeah, just like growing a flower bed. I don't know about you, but like I said, I've seen the movie Us, and this sounds incredibly freaky through the lens of that film. I don't love the idea of when John or Sarah malfunctions upstairs, they pick apart the robot corpse of the previous John or Sarah. Listen, I don't know if that's how it works. They're all just scrap metal, but it really freaks me out. And there are too many stories of ghosts and too many horror movies and too much propaganda that robots are going to steal our job that I just got to move on to the next call. Oh, my God. Why can't I stop being scared? (gasps) Okay, so back to the little girl. I will wrap this up and try not to piss myself. (laughs) But I think that this is probably the best answer we are going to get. It seems she's just a prop and not a character intended for us to talk about decades and decades and decades later. But regardless, I have reached out to the Walt Disney Archives and to Walt Disney World and will let you know if I hear anything about our little unnamed gelatin girl. But until then, she's just an object like the robots who cannot hurt us. Moving on. Hi, Carly. This is Carla from Florida. I was just curious. What are your thoughts on is Goofy a cow or a dog? Thanks. <sighs> you never forget the first time you hear Goofy may be a cow. For some of you, that day could be today. For me, it was about a year ago when someone tweeted a link to some back-end podunk website explaining how my favorite Disney character had this deep, dark, species-based secret. The Goofy truthers have always been there, questioning the reality of Goofy's origins, yet it's hard to pinpoint exactly when this philosophy caught steam. There was apparently a big discussion in a Facebook group earlier this year, but a tweet from wrestler Angelo Dawkins went somewhat viral back in May. Remember, right in the middle of everyone's online quarantine time. And I think that did the trick. Nearly 4,000 likes and a few months later, here we are, attempting to permanently solve this problem. Now, some attribute the origin of the rumor to Goofy having the eyes for Clarabelle the cow in various animated productions, but I think that's extremely closed-minded and pretty prejudicial against the Fab Five's only interspecies relationship, considering Mickey and Minnie and Donald and Daisy shacked up with one of their own. There are only a few ways to solve this problem, however, and all of them lead to going directly to the source. 
I didn't really want to get Bill Farmer on the phone and offend him by asking if his whole life is a lie. So thankfully, someone else already did. In a Yahoo interview from earlier this year with Bill, who voices Goofy, they posed the age-old question of Goofy's lineage, and the answer was weird. In an excerpt from that interview, Farmer says, he is not a dog with absolute authority. Yahoo literally said, Farmer told us he's not a dog with absolute authority. Okay, moving on. He goes to say, Pluto is a dog, but Goofy seems to be in the canine family in the same way that a wolf is not a dog, but they are also in the canine family. I think canius goofus is the technical Latin term for what Goofy is. He's just Goofy. Well, that's not solving anything anytime soon. So I kept digging. It ends up, back in 2019, the WDW Guest Service Twitter account, a verified official Disney social media account, responded to a tweet posing the same question and answered, we're happy to settle this debate. Goofy is most definitely a dog. Now, I was ready to take this as the word of God. Granted, it may not be carved into the Ten Commandments, but it's kind of in the Bible, so that seems like fair game. But the quote being attributed to Nina at Guest Services wasn't as airtight as I needed it to be. After all, the dude who voices Goofy isn't even sure what species he is. So I reached out to Walt Disney Animation to confirm if Goofy is in fact a dog or a cow. And boy, did they come through. The Disney Animation Research Library and the Walt Disney Archives agreed that this question was best answered by Disney legend Dave Smith. Goofy was originally created as a human character with dog-like characteristics, thus why he walks upright, wears clothes, talks, and has animal features that resemble a dog. So there you go! In the immortal words of the man who created the Walt Disney Archives, Goofy ain't no cow. Hi, Carly. It's Doug. I had a question about the Contemporary Resort. You know how they have the monorail go through there, of course. How do they keep birds and bugs out? They should be swarming everywhere, right? Tell me I'm not crazy. It's not like they have the guy from Fox and the Hounds out there with his gun and copper after the birds or anything. So please give me some insight on this. Thank you. This call is fascinating to me because at first it's funny and then you start thinking about it and you're like, why aren't there more birds flying around the contemporary? There are constantly birds in airports and birds in other buildings they shouldn't be in. Why on earth aren't they setting up shop at Chef Mickey's? So I reached out to Disney and was unable to get an answer, but I asked some employees of the Contemporary Resort for insight, and sadly, it appears the answer is nowhere near as exciting as you and I were both hoping it might be. There are apparently air ducts at the monorail openings that blow air downward, which helps with air conditioning, but also keeps birds out. There are additionally decoy owls to discourage them from flying in. So between it being loud and hard and kind of scary, it's really just not advantageous for birds to enter. But one cast member told me that most birds that do get into the building get in through the sliding glass doors downstairs. Who knew? Anyway, thank you so much to all the CMs who helped solve this mystery. And caller, I will continue dreaming of a contemporary atrium filled with tropical birds in your honor. Hi, Carly. My name is Dana Goldberg from Maryland. 
I was calling to see if you knew where I could send a letter to one of the characters. My daughter uh, wrote a letter and would like to send it to Tinkerbell. So if you have the answer, I would really appreciate that. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for your unbelievably sweet call. I reached out to my friend Jenna, who is a high school classmate of mine who went on to have a wonderful career at the Walt Disney Company, and she told me that there is actually an address that you can mail that letter to. It's P.O. Box 10040, Lake Buena Vista, Florida, 32830-0040. I am not sure if you will get a response soon due to furloughs. I believe even our magical creatures like Tinkerbell herself have been temporarily relieved of duty. But regardless, that is the best place for you to send it. And I wish you luck in getting a response. Thanks for calling. Hi, Carly. This is Kelly from Cleveland, Ohio. I'm so happy I spelled churros correctly. I love the podcast. Seriously, obsessed with it. I listened to it while I was riding my bike to the post office this week and literally as I'm coming home, like I'm going to go Google finding craft plans so I can watch it. And lo and behold, it is nowhere to be found. Like literally with the entire internet at our disposal, there is no way to watch more than like a two minute clip, which by the way, has Pee Wee Herman's bike in it. I mean, seriously, you cannot tease us with this glory and then like pull it out from under our feet. We need to see Finding Craftland. Literally, I have never wanted something so badly. I don't know if it's months of isolation or what, but please, 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 please find a way to bring us Finding Craftland. The, the world has spoken and we need it. Anyways, love you so much. Love the podcast. Truly, like, I wish there was a new one every day, which would probably kill you. So Wednesdays is great, but um, love the family. Love every time you are yelling at us from the internet. Love your dog. Love it all. Um, so thank you for bringing this little slice of heaven to what has been a crazy and chaotic year. Um, and please find a way for us to watch Finding Craftland. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you for this call. Uh, I immediately texted this voicemail to Nikki Kraft, who was on last week's episode. And we're going to try to figure out some way to satiate anyone who wants to see Craftland. In the meantime, I'm sure if you're if you're really wanting to see it, you've probably already been on Stacey Aswad's YouTube, where there are clips of the documentary of her hosting. But beyond that, it is truly scrubbed from the internet. I'm doing my part. We're trying to figure it out. So stay tuned if we're able to find a solution for you to watch Finding Craftland. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much to everyone who called into 747 Churros. Keep those calls coming. I have a full-blown call log. I am marking every call. I'm using them in future episodes, and I love hearing from you. Thank you so much to the anonymous cast members and team members who shared their spooky stories. You all worked so hard, and we're thinking of everyone who worked this busy Labor Day weekend, as well as everyone who is still patiently waiting to be called back to work. If you want to help out employees in need, you can donate to the Cast Member Pantry on Venmo at Cast Member Pantry, or contribute to the weekly drive-up food bank operated by Unite Here Local 737 Union. Gabrielle Roussan of the Orlando Sentinel, one of my all-time favorite reporters, said last week that the line of cars there stretched for two miles. 
Members of the hospitality and tourism industry in Florida really need your help. So if you have a few bucks to spare, please do. I'll leave links to both in the show notes. A very special thank you to Kevin Perjurer of Defunct Land, our historical king. His mini empire of all things deep diving into theme parks, classic television, and themed entertainment can be found on YouTube, which has become my official autumnal quarantine hobby. I keep mentioning them through Halix and World's Fair and a bunch of other stuff because it's really the best way to channel one's theme park itchies at a time like this. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or just listen to us wherever you get your pods. Also, maybe, I don't know, tell a friend about it? (laughs) Send them a link? My friends and I just keep sending the dumbest stories about celebrity pregnancies and Target soap packs, and I don't know, maybe this episode will bring them as much joy as I got out of my friend Alex sending me a TikTok from a beauty influencer who said that laser hair removal costs next to nothing in South Korea. Who knew? Maybe just spread that bit of joy. I don't know. Anything goes these days. Very Amusing is edited spectacularly by Jeff Fox. Stay tuned for next week's episode, which I just can't keep quiet about. And considering you've listened this long into a mailbag episode, I'll give you a single clue. The word is detonator. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon. Hi, honey. It's mom. I loved this podcast this week. It was so, so good. And I learned so much, but I never met Stacy, but I know her from TV. I just wanted to say I am so, so proud of you. You are doing great. And this is wonderful. And thank you for, not the tribute, but thank you for saying those nice things that you love me and that I birthed you. That was so cute. I love that. And I would have made a pillow. I was going to surprise you and make a very amusing pillow, but the G is cut off, so I couldn't do it. But I just wanted to say I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye, sweetheart.